You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks for listening to Hold That Thought. I'm Claire Navarro. This week, we are continuing our series on religion and politics with historian David Hollinger. Hollinger is Professor Emeritus at the University of California, Berkeley. I had the chance to speak with him last year when he came to Washington University as the guest speaker for the Danforth Distinguished Lecture Series. His most recent book is After Cloven Tongues of Fire, Protestant Liberalism and Modern American History. In the book, Hollinger explores the split between two strands of American Protestantism, which he describes as evangelical and ecumenical. For today's podcast, he talks about the history of how this split came about and how the evangelical side became the public face of American religion and politics. Here's Dr. Hollinger. When we talk about the history of American Protestantism, we often refer to a kind of two-party system. And this goes back even to colonial times. And generally, um, one of the two parties is loosely speaking more liberal, theologically, politically. And the other side is a little bit more conservative. The differences between the two groups are reflected in how they approach scripture, for example, And as Hollinger mentioned, these conflicts have been going on throughout American history. In the 1920s is the most famous one of these that most people learned something about in a textbook when they were in high school or college where we talk about the fight between the fundamentalists and the modernists. And so the fundamentalists didn't like evolution and they didn't like uh, the study of the scripture which embedded the scriptures in human culture rather than seeing them as direct divine inspirations. And the modernists had no problem with evolution and they were quite keen on understanding the ways in which the Bible was a human authored book. Now I mention that because when we talk about ecumenical Protestants in the period that I'm mostly concerned with, which is the period from World War II on down to the present, we're there talking about another version of this old two-party system. And the terms we usually use are ecumenical and evangelical. The words evangelical and ecumenical have been around a long time as ways to describe Christian religion. The dictionary definition for evangelical is according to the teaching of the gospel or the Christian religion. Ecumenical, again, this is the dictionary definition, means representing a number of different Christian churches. But these words weren't always tied to this idea of a two-party system. That distinction took place in the 1940s. What happens in the 1940s is that a lot of the more conservative Protestants especially those coming out of this fundamentalist modernist quarrel from the 1920s and 30s, a lot of these people got so disgusted with what they saw as the excessive liberalization of a lot of the socially empowered, well-off white Protestants, the Presbyterians, the Congregationalists, the Methodists, the Northern Baptists, uh, Episcopalians, and so forth, that these fundamentalists organized... um, under the term evangelical. So in 1942, they establish an outfit called the National Association of Evangelicals. And what they are saying is that the other people are not evangelical enough. 
So that was on the more conservative side, now dubbed evangelicals. On the other hand... The liberals had increasingly become ecumenical, by which I mean that they were reaching out for broader and broader bases of a community of faith. So they were saying, look, the difference between the Episcopalians and the Presbyterians and the Methodists is not such a big deal. Why can't we work together more? And the difference between the kinds of Christians we have in the United States and those that are growing in China and India, many of which involve uh, syncretist things of incorporating local traditions into Christianity, these are all to the good. So the ecumenists are getting a really broad tent And they're saying lots of people can be counted as Christians. And the evangelicals, the old fundamentalists, are saying, wait a minute, that's too liberal. You guys are betraying the faith as once delivered to the saints. So evangelicalism from the 1940s on is the party that's more orthodox, you might say, or at least claiming to be orthodox. Ecumenical is the term that we use for these people who are increasingly liberal. So if this is a two-party rivalry... Why is the word evangelical so much more commonly used than the word ecumenical? Just try typing the two words into Google. Hollinger believes that there are specific historical reasons that evangelical groups have over the years become the public face of Protestantism. As the liberals became more liberal, a lot of their children left the churches altogether because they didn't see that it was such a big deal to remain Christian if a lot of these people who were not Christians were doing the same stuff that we Christians were supposedly doing. So as a result of the out-migration of a lot of the liberals, the evangelicals are held, are still in a position of controlling most of the symbolic capital of Christianity. Now there are two crucial specific aspects of this that I want to make sure get underscored. And the one is that many of the ideas that the liberals abandon as being too narrow are loved by vast numbers of American white Protestants. For example, America is a Christian country. Well, the liberals said, wait a minute, we got Jews here. We even got Muslims. We got atheists. Are these not Americans? So the liberals then respond to diversity by abandoning the notion that the United States is a Christian nation. The evangelicals will have no part of this, by and large. Okay, there are a few exceptions, but by and large, they will not. Another example, the, um, the liberals decide that it's too narrow to assert that God's will was that all human beings live in heterosexual, nuclear, patriarchal families. The liberals say, well, there's different kinds of families. You know, maybe even same-sex relationships aren't so bad. And maybe women should be doing a lot of stuff other than uh, cleaning house. Well, the evangelicals uh, are very, very uncomfortable with this direction of the liberals. So they then start talking about family values. There are a whole series of ideas like this so that as, as the liberals move further toward contemporary secular culture, they abandon ideas that are popular with the white public. So evangelical Protestantism flourishes by taking up the ideas that are abandoned by the liberals. That's one crucial thing. The second crucial thing is, and it's very closely connected, the liberals start having fewer children. So it's not only that many of their children leave the Christian faith, 
the huge difference in attitudes toward women and toward their role. And so the, the liberals encourage women to work professionally. The, the liberals also encourage a, uh, an attitude toward sex as being valuable for purposes other than procreation. Now, as a result of these things, the demography is, is hugely different. During the, the baby boom, Presbyterian women, for example, birthed an average of 1.6 children. Evangelical women birthed an average of 2.4. Now, from a statistics point of view, that is a huge difference. Huge significance in terms of what happens to Christianity, because that means that the symbolic capital of Christianity is increasingly in the control of the evangelicals, who have larger and larger numbers, and the ecumenists produce fewer children, have fewer women of childbearing age in their churches, and more and more of their children become secularists. That's why today, when you look at the Congress of the United States and the Senate and American politics, evangelical Protestants are all over the place. They're the people who are really doing the God talk. The liberals have mostly retreated. One of the reasons the liberals don't want to do God talk is they don't want to offend people who are not Christians. The reasons that liberal Protestants don't want to offend non-Christians relate to the history that Hollinger just laid out. For one, these ecumenical Protestants abandoned the idea that the United States is a Christian country. After all, many of their own children have left the faith. But the problem with only one side of a two-party system controlling the God talk, as Hollinger puts it, is that while political viewpoints can be debated, often it seems that religious beliefs cannot. Hollinger believes that when it comes to the mix of religion and politics, this attitude is a problem. If uh, religion is something that affects how we vote for somebody, if some politician says, hey, I'm a good Christian, and, uh, you know, vote for me, and that'll be affecting the way that I govern, if that's the way they're going to campaign, then I think we ought to be able to ask them questions about it. The same way we talk about gender, race, the economy, the environment. I mean, one of the great things about our political system is that we got a lot of robust back and forth, even even sometimes uh, sort of mocking um, discourse. I mean, we're, we really take each other on. But when religion is involved, well, that seems to be the last bastion of that old thing about how if you can't say something good about somebody, don't say anything at all. That old, like, fourth grade Sunday school stuff, well, we've still got that when it comes to religion. It's a mistake. So what debates around religion and politics should happen? For one example, Hollinger would like to see Christians who bring up the Bible or their faith when talking about same-sex marriage to have to defend those viewpoints, to bring up exactly where in the Bible those beliefs come from. So, uh, you know, you got a lot of biblical scholars, a lot of liberal Protestants who would have a lot to say about that. Now, this would result in a discussion of uh, just how literally we're to read the Bible. And, okay, if we're going to take that thing out of Romans, what do we do with Leviticus and the various wild uh, instructions that are said there? So you could actually have a discussion of the Bible, uh, which we generally don't have in the United States. The Bible is something that everybody affirms. You know, people like to carry it, get pictures of themselves carrying it in and out of church before they run for office. But if people are going to say that the Bible is a foundation for American politics, then they better be able to defend it.
Many thanks to David Hollinger for contributing to Hold That Thought. For many more ideas to explore, including more episodes from our collaboration with the John C. Danforth Center on Religion and Politics, be sure to visit holdthatthought.wustl.edu. You can also find Hold That Thought on Facebook and Twitter, or search for our weekly podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud.